Our scripture today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verses 15 through 25. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you done? What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah." And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor of his father's house. The offspring and issue, every small vessel, from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. This is the word of God. Amen. Wow. Great, great worship. Thank you, choir. So good to be in God's house this Christmas season, and to be able to worship him and worship him in spirit. And in truth, I look to my left and see Michael Lavender this morning. Michael, we are so glad you're well. And uh, Michael and his family were in a pretty tough accident on the way home from Thanksgiving. And uh, glad you're doing well. Uh, We are in the fourth sermon in our series uh, called Eracross. And Eracross is a a Latin word that uh, means tomorrow I will come. The uh, eight names in the, that these uh, uh, letters represent all come from the book of uh, Isaiah, and they all come uh, also uh, from the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. They're all in that song. If we look at what each of these means, we started out with Emmanuel, God with us. We then looked at a king or the R as a regent or a regis king. Uh, we looked last week at Orion's or day star. He is the light. And uh, today we are going to look at Clavis, the key of David. Keys are interesting things. They have evolved these days, haven't they? Uh, you used to have to put them indoors of cars. Uh, and you don't have to do that anymore. On many cars, you hit a button and you're in. Uh, you used to have to put them in the ignition of cars. And many cars now don't require a key in the ignition. Uh, I was just looking up some random stats this week. And in 2012, uh, AAA said, still with the advancement in keys and technology, in 2012, they uh, answered 4 million calls for locked keys in cars. 
Keys are those things you don't think about until you lose them. Uh, Keys are those things you don't think about until you don't have them. And then they're all important, uh, aren't they? They matter significantly. Uh, I read years ago that when you're under stress, you tend to lock your keys in your car more than not. And uh, I agree. Uh, In my... um, Uh, freshman year in college, it it was a stressful time. I have no clue. I I got to know the security folks at Wofford so well because my little 1979 Plymouth Horizon, uh, we broke into it, I think, as many times as I used the keys to get in it. And so when we talk about keys, it's an unusual topic. Or when we talk about a key, it's all a metaphor uh, that Jesus is the key of David. And so we're going to look at three characteristics of this key. And as we do, you will discover uh, the significance of what it meant then and what it means now that Jesus is the key of David. Uh, Characteristic number one is that the key recognizes servant leadership. The key recognizes servant leadership. This is a a little known passage, but uh, in the beginning of it, thus says the Lord God of hosts. This is that prophetic um, uh, construction. God is speaking through Isaiah. Come, go to this steward to Shebna. Shebna was a steward. He worked with King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a godly king of Judah. The year is uh, about 710. Uh, 10, 11 years earlier, uh, Israel to the north has fallen. And if you read what comes right before this, um, Jerusalem is next. The oracles have come against Jerusalem saying, look to your neighbors to the north. See what happened to them? It will happen to you if you don't turn around. And so here's a guy who is a steward. What did that mean? He's second in command to the king. He's number two. He, uh, there is King Hezekiah and then there's Shebna. And Shebna has an all-important job. And so the uh, prophet discovers him in an interesting place. Come go to the steward to Shebna who is over the household and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. Uh, What is Shebna up to? Well, if you go to Israel and you are on the Mount of Olives side, looking down the Kidron Valley into that now closed eastern gate, you see the Dome of the Rock right in front of you. Evidently, uh, across that Kidron Valley and up toward the Mount of Olives, there are tombs. And these tombs were built for a very specific people, their royal tombs. You see, in those days, not so much now these days, but in those days, your importance was not only determined by the life you lived, but by the burial you enjoyed. Uh, Your tomb mattered. The way you were buried mattered. And here's Shebna. He's second to the king. He's not royalty. Don't forget that. The king is royalty. He's hired help. But he's second to the king. He's over in the royal graveyard, if you will, picking his plot out. 
He's finding a spot in which to be buried. What is interesting is that Judah is dying. He's got uh, uh, urgent work to be done, meaning there is an oracle against your very nation. Go to your nation and, and fix that. Rather than caring for his dying nation, he is all consumed with his personal legacy. It is his uh, record that matters. It is how he will be seen after he is dead that matters. And Isaiah finds him there. You see, uh, uh, Shebna is a legend in his own mind. He, um, he's the best thing since sliced bread, if you ask him. All right, you've met those people. Um, whatever you've done, they've done better. All right, wherever you've gone, they've gone farther. Uh, uh, what, however much you have, they have more. Uh, when you talk with them, they only talk of themselves. You listen to them and they sound the trumpet of their accomplishments or their achievements, be they financial, be they academic, uh, be they family, whatever it may be. And here Shebna is concerned about his future. God, in a word, says, who do you think you are? Uh, Shebna, who do you think you are? And then he says, this is what I'll do with you. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. Oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around, throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. Wow. God isn't mincing words, is he? He says to Shebna, uh, I'm going to pick you up like a rag doll, you strong man. I'm going to whirl you around and around until you're in a ball of sorts. I'll sling you into the wide open wilderness where no one will come and pay their respects to you. And there you will die. That is not the end Shebna envisioned for himself, is it? It's not his future. Uh, that certainly isn't the legacy he's trying to uh, promote by carving out his tomb among the royals. You see, the key recognizes servant leadership reading a book right now called H3 Leadership by Brad Lominick. It's rocking my world. And in the chapter on humility, he says these words. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Jesus' advice runs against the leadership mantras most of us live by today. What are they? Uh, blessed are the strong. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the heavy-handed Blessed are the connected. Blessed are the charismatic. Blessed are the promoted. Blessed are the in charge. He goes on to say, humble leaders are willing to pass on the credit, but absorb the criticism. Push others higher while making themselves lower and put the team's desires ahead of their own. As a matter of fact, God is so uh, 
into servant leadership that if you read the next verse, verse 20, in that day, what day? The same day, Shebna, I uproot you and swing, sling you around like a rag doll. In that day, I will raise up my servant, servant Eliakim. Uh, the key recognizes servant leadership. Secondly, and this must follow the first, the key represents authority. All right, so the key recognizes servant leadership, which uh, Shebna did not exhibit. But secondly, the key represents authority. Look at uh, verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. And will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Uh, Authority is, um, is power. It is influence. When someone is in authority, they call the shots. We live and die by this rule. Teachers in their classrooms are authorities. What they say goes. Parents in their home are authorities. What parents say goes. Bosses at work are authorities. What they say goes. It doesn't mean it's never contested, but it means that that someone has the final say. That's life. Life is built and designed like that. Everywhere you have order, there is authority. The key represents authority, but there's an interesting limitation on the authority. Notice how Eliakim is described. He is described as a father. That's interesting. And I will clothe him with your robe and bind your sash on him, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Judah. Why? You see, Shebna, while the nation is dying, is trying to promote his own legacy, his own uh, name, his own fame, his own uh, good goodwill. Fathers don't do that. Fathers sacrifice. I would say to you this morning that. I am convinced the greatest sacrifice on the planet is to become a parent. When you decide to be a mom or a dad, you're signing up not just until they're 18, not just until they're 22 or 23. You are committing to being in their lives for the rest of their lives. Oh, your capacities change, your capacities transition, but the, the, the most selfless, sacrificial act I know on the planet is to be a mom or it is to be a dad. I would say to you, teenagers, many of you across the room this morning, uh, you have no idea the sacrifices your parents make. Some of them are Visible, they're financial, or um, they are uh, things that you can r- r- literally see with your eyes. Most of them are not. 
Most of them are nights praying. Most of them are worrisome thoughts about a relationship you're in, your future, your direction. Parenting is hard work, isn't it? It's very hard. And Eliakim is called a father. Thomas Vowed Sr. and his wife Mary Ellen had seven children. They lived in Virginia, and by the time they were expecting their seventh, uh, they were Catholics, and, and it's because of their faith that they had so many. By the time they were expecting their seventh, they were in their 40s. Josie, a boy, was born with Down syndrome. And uh, when Josie was young uh, in 2008, he was outside and fell into a broken septic tank. It was eight feet deep in there. And so their little Down syndrome child had fallen into this broken septic tank. We live in a society that discredits life if it doesn't meet certain standards. And certainly a father of seven and the value of his life, if you want to think like that, and a Down syndrome child and his inability to provide for his family, but rather be a burden medically on his family, there's There's no, if you're just weighing dollars, there's no question. But the little boy sunk in there, and the father did what fathers do. He jumped into that uh, septic tank, lowered himself down, uh, grabbed Josie, and realized that the two of them couldn't stay above the water, so he hoisted Josie up on his head and held his breath while he waited for the rescuers to arrive. And they got there. But dad had died, saving that little Down syndrome boy. He died. That's what fathers do. And moms too. But that's what fathers do. Um, The authority of the servant is limited by love. That's important. You see, if you have authority without love, you're an authoritarian. No one wants to be around you. Just to use common vernacular, you're a jerk. All right? Nobody wants to be around a jerk. I've seen husbands who are that way toward their wives, wives that way toward their husbands. I've seen parents that way toward their children, bosses that way toward their employees. Who wants to work for that boss? Who wants to be in that marriage? Who wants to uh, be a, a son or a daughter of that dad or mom? But an authority who is a father is authority that is confined, restrained by love. That's huge, isn't it? Yeah, this, uh, this key gives 
gives authority, and it's a limited authority. It's a confined authority. It's an authority that must be confined by love. A third characteristic is that this key gives responsibility. Look at verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Anything on your shoulders is a responsibility. The phrase implies that. Anything on your shoulders is a burden or a responsibility. So the key of the house of David, uh, what is the point of the key? Here it is. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. What? Open what? Close what? Close what and open what? Uh, Remember he's second to the king. His job is to make sure that who gets in to see Hezekiah is who ought to get in to see Hezekiah. And that who shouldn't get in to see Hezekiah shouldn't get in to see him. Why? There, there are a number of reasons that we could surmise. One would be national security. Uh, this is the king. Uh, this guy is responsible for who gets to see him and who doesn't. Danger lurks uh, against someone in such a leadership position. So there's that. Uh, it's also access. Who's worthy of the king's presence? What does that mean? It means who really wants to see the king for the right reasons. You see, the king only has a limited amount of time. He's got a, a large kingdom, a limited amount of time. Who he sees is very important. And so Eliakim's job is not to allow people in who only, you know, have money to give him. Perhaps Shepna did that. His job is to allow people in who have right and pure motives to see the king. Okay, that's good. What does that mean for us? Jesus would touch on this I provide the entire reference of Matthew 16, 13 through 20 to give us full understanding. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, which incidentally, that's the who's who among Old Testament heroes. Uh, not a bad list to be on. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Which is a question all of us has to answer at some point. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And all God's people say, amen. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is where? In heaven, Uh, potentially inaccessible, right? Let's keep reading. And I tell you, 
you are Peter. And on this rock, this rock of the declaration that I am the Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of hell, we are now talking about access and gates, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you what church? The what? Say it again. The what? The keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This verse has been often misconstrued, misunderstood. Uh, I've talked with many people, or some people, not many, uh, but with some people who believe that this gives them some kind of unique power. And they're able to bind things down here uh, that are satanic or that are demonic in nature, loose things, etc., etc. I'm not saying that in some ways it cannot be understood like that. All I'm saying is if you're going to talk about keys, you have to talk about them everywhere they occur in Scripture. The Reformation taught us that. You do. And they occur in Isaiah 22. They occur here and in one more place. If the the way they work is in keeping, then what this says is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? What this says is that every lost person within driving distance of this church, if they come to Christ, the key is on your shoulder. That's what it says. Not just this church. It's on the church's shoulder in McDowell County. That's what it says. If that was Eliakim's job, Jesus says it's ours. We aren't the king, but we work for him, do we not? And when we preach the gospel, we loose people from sin, just like we've just sung in that great hymn, O Holy Night. Uh, the, the gospel frees people from sin. When we preach the gospel, that's that's what we do. You see, this isn't a country club. This isn't come together and feel better about yourself day. This is, oh, worship the king. This is the almighty God. This is the phone call I had this week with a man who was here last week. And as I talked to him, I went through, we had eight or nine first time families here last week. And as I talked to him, I eventually got, do you know Christ? No. If you were to die today, where would you go? Oh, I know I would go to hell. Does that bother you? Yes, it does. Why are you coming to church? There is something there that I've got to have. Keys. Keys. It's on your shoulder. It's not on mine because I'm a paid professional. It's on mine because I'm a son of God. It's on yours because you're a son or daughter of God. If you're a teacher, it is somehow within the limitations of the law of your kids. If you're a doctor or a nurse, it is somehow within the right practice of your medicine, your clients or patients. If you're a boss, 
It's definitely your employees. You will not escape that. One day you will answer, did you show and share Christ with them? This Christmas, it's mom or dad or son or daughter or brother or sister or neighbor. In your seat, you see these invite cards. Mine's in my basket over there. Would you grab those right now? While you're grabbing them, I'll show you how important it is. Would you uh, listen to Joey and Danielle's story of how God radically and wonderfully changed their lives? Check it out. Speaking to her that you know this is true that this is you know 
turning point in me that you know, I could tell that you know, I wanted to do better for my family, for God, for everything, for my children, because the way I was living before wasn't right. I struggled with a lot of things. Um, backslid a lot. I made excuses for um, not attending church or helping out um, needs that needed to be done. And I just put them all on the back burner. Um, I wasn't living right. And I felt like when my wife decided that she um, uh, accepted Christ into her heart, that you know, I needed to do what's best for my family. I needed to do what's best. And I felt like God was speaking to me. And that's um, why me and her both got baptized. I wanted her to be in my life and to Christ and start over with you know, a couple to make sure that we were both living right for our children and for God. And just try to help out with this as can. <laughs> One of the things that Danielle didn't share is that after she came to the park that day, Joey uh, uh, was down in Cross Mill. It was in the summer, and Joey was in Cross Mill, and he took the kids down there uh, to the park in Cross Mill, and he saw a bunch of teenagers working, and he thought, oh, I better pull out, and he said, is something going on? And they said, no, 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 this is a, this is a, a Grace Community Church. We're doing a, par- a, a, a kids club out here in the summer. And he said, we had heard it over here, and we'd heard it there, and they uh, went through tough times. She now works in the food pantry, but during that time, they went through tough times. She showed up at the food pantry, and Holly Ramsey uh, loved her in that food pantry. And Holly uh, reached out to her, as Holly amazingly does. You see, what I don't want you to feel this morning is guilt. What I do want you to feel this morning is wait. Wait. I want the key to hang heavy. If you leave and the key isn't hanging heavy, you didn't get what you came for. So the card that you have, here's what I'd like for you to do is say, okay, God, who should get it? If you're a teacher, maybe it's a parent. If you are, you have patience, maybe you should get a stack of them as you leave today. Or if you own your own business, maybe you should do that. Who who ought to be invited to worship here on December 20th? That morning, the gospel will be presented so clearly that night. We'll worship together at two different times. What happened You see, lest we become enthralled with Eliakim, you have to finish reading. It says, and I will fasten him like a peg. This is Eliakim. In a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. This guy has a heavy-duty responsibility. The offspring, an issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. Oh, what a job this guy has. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will what? It'll give way. 
This Eliakim servant guy is going to give out. He's going to give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken. What? You choose Eliakim the servant, but Eliakim the servant cannot handle it. Shebna obviously failed. He was arrogant. But as Eliakim, as good as he was, was not good enough. Who would fulfill such a responsibility? Who could handle the weight of the world on his shoulders? That's the question today. Who? Jesus came, born of a woman, and lived under the law. He did it sinlessly and perfectly. He went to the cross as the sinless Lamb of God and died for the sins of the whole world. Three days later, he resurrected. Who is this Jesus? Could he be the new Eliakim? Could he be the new Shebna? Is it possible that finally there is a key of David? who will not bend with the weight of the world on his shoulders, who will not falter, who will not be consumed with who he is, but could possibly empty himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Could it be possible that royalty in and of itself will disrobe itself of royalty? Could it be possible that God could become man? Revelation 3, 7. Last time the key is mentioned. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who what? What does he have? The key. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts, and no one will open. All right, take your card, your invite card, hold it in front of you. I want to say something to you this morning, and please hear me. If your student, your patient, your family member, your friend, your employee comes to Christ, it will not be Because you opened their heart. Oh, you have to tell them. You have to invite. You have to share. But there is one who opens and no one shuts. His name is Jesus. Amen. Do you know what that ought to enable us to do? (sighs) Pressure release valve. Right. Whatever fear is keeping you from sharing this Christmas, let go of it. If they come to Christ, it will be his doing. Amen? Yes. Always. Always. No fear. No fear. Here's how we're going to close today, not with an invitation song. What I want us to do is just have just a couple minutes of quiet. This is for two people, two kinds of people in the room. First, I want to address the big group. I want you to take this two minutes and pray for whoever it is 
you'd love to see come to Christ. Then I want to address a smaller group. You are here this morning, and like Danielle, you walked in not knowing Jesus. You say, how can I know this Jesus who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament? How can I know him? Like Danielle, you have to realize you're a sinner. In Romans 10, 9 and 10 are pretty simple. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Let me just give a tiny little background to that. In that day, Nero is on the scene. He demanded that he be called Lord to confess with your mouth, their mouth, that Jesus is Lord could cost them their life. For you to do it means it will cost you your life that you've dreamed of because that will become God's. He'll call the shots. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right now, this morning, would all of you bow your heads? Those of you who know someone that you want to come to Christ, you're praying for them. Those of you who don't know Christ, here is a simple prayer you could pray. It goes like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. I now confess you as Lord. You are in charge of my life. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe that you are coming back. From now on, my life is yours. My decisions are yours. My future is yours. Thank you for saving me. If you prayed that prayer this morning, we'd love to know that you have done so and ask that you just put it on your connection card and we'll be in touch this week.